Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the following episode contains mention of deceased persons and themes that may cause distress to Indigenous people. I'm starting to feel like the edges are blurred between prison and what this is. It's not prison, so the alternative is freedom, but I don't feel free. I feel like the same things are being imposed on me out here as they were in prison. I've just kind of stepped out of this smaller prison into a larger prison. Indigenous Australians are the most incarcerated people on earth. They make up 2% of the general population, but a staggering 28% of the male prison population and 34% of the female prison population. Vicky Roach is an academic and historian who received her first criminal charge sheet at two and a half years of age for neglect by way of destitution. Over three decades, she's been in and out of jail, convicted 125 times. Her life is a testament to the systemic inequality and domestic violence that has led to the highest Indigenous incarceration rate in the world. What does violence mean to you? How would you define it? Violence is is anything that causes trauma. So it doesn't need to be a punch in the mouth or getting a hit with a baseball bat or something like that. It can be words, it can be racism. It can be the way the system inflicts violence on you by way of poverty or lack of health care, education. All these things have violent consequences and violent outcomes for the people who are subject to them. Violence is all pervasive and the only people who seem to be able to escape it are those who can afford to pay for a life free of the violence that the rest of us have to live with and have to navigate through. I'm always running. Well, not anymore, but I used to be. It was running to escape systemic or institutional violence. Well, to begin with, when I was a little kid, they were going to put me in a home for for running away. So I just ran further so they couldn't catch me. And that's pretty much what I was doing most of my life. I was either running from the system, who was going to inflict violence on me by way of institution, or I was running from actual men who were going to commit violence on me just for being alive. The Australian Law Reform Commission revealed that the majority of Indigenous female prisoners are survivors of domestic violence, family violence and sexual abuse. This trauma exacerbates the existing disadvantages faced by First Nations people. I was removed from my mother and 
when I went to court, they charged me with being neglected by way of destitution and being exposed to moral danger. And these were actual police charges, criminal charges, that, that went on my record and stayed on my record. The more of those charges that you have, the more likely you are to be locked up. Even just having that one charge, you know, when you get a bit older, they see it as a previous criminal charge, even though you're only two years old at the time. Some kids were older, but this happened to heaps of kids. Well, I didn't always know I'd been charged, but I knew I'd been removed when I got my wardship file, and it was virtually the first document in my file was this charge sheet from, from 1961 when I was two and a half. That was pretty shocking because it literally looked like a police charge for a crime. And yet it was just a device to enable the court to place me in the care of foster parents. Could you illustrate some of what you mean by that harsh treatment? Not just being put in these places, even if you hadn't done anything wrong, you were still treated like you had no value. And the staff was sort of routinely brutal and controlling. And I suppose particularly back when, when I was young, they, weren't, they wouldn't have been particularly well-trained either. They would have come from religious institutions. They kind of treated us like our bodies belonged to them, which you didn't sort of understand when you were a kid, but as I reflect on this when I get older, they taught me that my body belonged to the state, not to me, and the state could do whatever it wanted. Same as for medical examinations. These were very intrusive and traumatic for a lot of young girls, and yet if you struggled or tried to resist, you were held down and forced to submit. That's basically what you're taught. For your own self-preservation, you have to submit and comply. Vicky's heart-wrenching cycle of domestic violence and the justice system highlights the ongoing oppression of Indigenous Australians since colonisation. She continues to advocate on these issues as a writer, poet and public speaker. Vicky's work is entrenched in her past. She identifies as a member of the Stolen Generation, as did her mother. The Stolen Generation were the children of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent who were removed from their families by the Australian government. The facts are that between one in three and one in ten Indigenous children were forcibly removed from their families and communities between 1910 and 1970, and the policies amounted to genocide under international law because the children were at such high risk of physical and sexual abuse in institutions, church missions and foster homes. When you were incarcerated, how did you adapt to the physical nature of violence? Or has that always been prevalent in your life as well? Well, no, it wasn't until I went into the kids' home. How I adapted to it, I I think I just disassociated. Once I realised that there was no way I could stop it, just distance yourself from your own body and let them do whatever. To fight is pointless. Every interaction with the system, with the government, is supposed to be charged with our welfare and well-being, approach us violently. Tony Abbott going up to 
remote communities and telling the people in Boralula that kids needed to be got back into school. And look, he wants to punish people for not going. That's how you encourage people to go to school. Teachers to think like white people. That's a form of violence. It's, you know, not getting punched in the head, but it's as damaging to your psyche as having that done. The interactions with police are all violent in intent towards Aboriginal people. Everything they do with us is punitive. They don't do anything with us or invite our participation, our consultation. They just impose stuff on us. It's like we're slaves. It's like our bodies belong to them and they treat us as though they belong to them. Well, they even had charges back then for if you cut your hair or altered your appearance, got a tattoo or self-harmed, the charge was damaging government property. So you were, you were well aware you didn't belong to yourself. What is a person who doesn't have agency, has no ownership of themselves, they're a slave. If you're owned by somebody else, you're a slave. The whole system is geared to be violent towards us. According to human rights bodies, case profiles indicate that major problems still exist in policing practices. The proportion of deaths occurring during police pursuit has noticeably risen since the 1990s. Three mentally ill Aboriginal people, none of whom had a firearm, were shot by police. And many First Nations people are being placed in custody for trivial offences. But Vicky used her time in prison to become empowered, educated and politically aware. She completed a master's degree in professional writing from Swinburne University and in 2007 was the plaintiff in a successful High Court challenge of the Howard government's amendment to the Electoral and Referendum Act which removed all prisoners' rights to vote. The amendment was argued to be silencing First Nations people who make up more than a quarter of the national prison population but approximately 2.5% of the population overall. When I was old enough to leave, I, I left, went and became a hippie in Nimbin. <laughs> yeah, eventually they, they got me back into prison. I was charged when I was 17. I was using drugs. I got pulled up by the police and they said to me that if I just admitted that I used drugs, that they'd get me some help which sounded like a good idea at the time. I was only young. So I said, oh, OK. And they didn't. They put me straight in jail. They actually gave me a six-month sentence. So I hadn't actually committed a crime. I just admitted that I might have. And could you, could you tell me about that, as a 17-year-old, what that first day and night were like in, I'm assuming, an adult prison? Well, they put me in what was called security at the time. There were two other underage girls and the rest of the women had mental health issues. So they kept us basically in isolation in this cell block. We were locked in our cells from four in the afternoon till about eight in the morning. There was no television or anything back then, so I learned to play guitar. <laughs> the days were just monotonous. Locked in the cell, you get let out. There was a, a cage at the back of the cell block, which was about the only place you could get any sunshine. They kept you there until you, till you turned 18, so it was not quite solitary. We got out for a few hours a day. 
but it was it was pretty isolating. The startling incarceration rate for First Nations people has a variety of consequences on their communities. It psychologically impacts the individual who is incarcerated, as well as their families and communities. Children with a parent in prison are particularly vulnerable, increasing their risk of contact with the justice system later in life. Incarceration can also lead to the loss of culture, identity, and a connection to the land. The cycle of disadvantage, poverty, and incarceration propels a culture of trauma, making communities less safe in the long run. There were often fights amongst the women, but the male officers, male screws, would often manhandle the women, but the women were no better. They'd manhandle a woman or, or punch a woman in the face for not doing what they wanted her to do. The use of isolation, well, I found that particularly violent, even if they didn't lay a hand on you, which they usually did because they'd drag you down there by your hair or whatever part of body, your body they could grab. Being stuck in this cell with a, a wooden pallet to sleep on and there for days, sometimes weeks, with nobody to talk to. It wasn't just violent on the woman who was in that situation. It was for all us too, because we'd know she was there. We'd hear her crying, we'd hear her screaming. We listened to a girl die one night. She'd been put in the isolation cells, but she'd had some sleeping pills on a visit. They'd pumped her stomach, but she still had them in her. We were singing out to her in the isolation cell. There was a screw supposed to be watching her, but she wouldn't go near her because she was swearing. When she went quiet and wasn't talking to us anymore, we were trying to get this screw to go and check on her. And she wouldn't because, no, I'm not going near her. She swears too much. She'd hung herself. That was terrible. That was really traumatic. They might have been able to save her if, if the screw had, had done anything. An ambulance came and left without taking her. Then they came in a black ute and rolled her up in a blanket and put her in the back of the ute and took her out of the jail like that. We could see all that too. 26 years have passed since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was tabled in Parliament, and the incarceration rate of First Nations people has doubled. Today, there are around 10,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults in prison, including roughly 1,000 women, 500 Indigenous youth in detention, and many more Indigenous people in custody in police cells across Australia. How common are stories like this in the... Australian or um, Indigenous female experience in the prison system? I'm sure they're, they're heaps common. There wasn't many women in prison in New South Wales back then. From memory, there was about 60 at that time. I would have been around possibly four deaths, either in custody or just after release. And how many of those women were Indigenous? Half of them. Coming back to more recent stints you might have served. How prevalent are Indigenous women in the, in the Australian prison system today? Well, I was just looking at some recent figures from the Human Rights Commission. It's 38% and, you know, we're 
just over 2% of the population. That's, that's pretty shocking. The rate of imprisonment of women altogether has increased by 77%. Most of those are Indigenous women. Like, it's pretty awful. Like in the Northern Territory, we've got 100% of the youth in detention up there are Indigenous. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The Australian Law Reform Commission inquiry investigated the role of the courts, police, and prisons in the over-incarceration of First Nations people. The inquiry found that the justice system was entrenching inequalities by not providing enough sentencing options and diversion programs for Indigenous offenders. Violence is a huge factor in why women go to prison, and particularly Indigenous women, First Nations women. The violence from the police, the violence of policing in communities to begin with. When there's family violence or domestic violence rolled up in that as well, I know in my experience, often you get into trouble when you flee a situation of domestic violence, like you're homeless, you're, you've got no money, so you have to live on your wits and you try to stay one step ahead of a black. So you often do things that may not be lawful. Or the actual situation of domestic violence brings the police. If you've got fines or warrants or something, you'll go to jail rather than the offender. That's extremely common, particularly with Aboriginal women and especially if the partner's white. Over-policing, over-regulation, <laughs> racism, and particularly Aboriginal women. Well, like any women, we're kind of seen as doubly worse than male offenders because we've somehow offended our gender. You know, like women are supposed to be sweet, gentle, you know, home in the kitchen looking after the kids. You know, we're not supposed to be out there committing crimes or anything. Often it can be a partner, you know, sort of insisting that, that his woman commit crimes with, with him or even for him. The woman doesn't feel she has any choice because he could be violent to her and often is anyway. There's some of the reasons that, that violence contributes to, to women going to jail. It's typically an attitude of, of violence or racial hatred that um, permits the violence against us. We're not perceived to be owed any more or due any more respect than that. In one respect, oh, it was a classic example of that. When I went to jail in Victoria, I'd been involved in a police pursuit and a car accident. 
And the reason that I was even in that situation was because of a violent partner who um, sort of got me to, to help him commit a petty crime, a crime nonetheless, and the police chased us and I smashed the car I was driving and I injured um, another person in another car. The situation there was I was going to stop. I'd already gone to pull over and he smacked me in the mouth and told me to keep driving. So I did. The judge said to me, well, you didn't have to do that. The police were right behind you. They were there to protect you. And I didn't say it, but I kind of thought to myself, well, you don't know the police, I know. <laughs> you know, for me, it was six to one, half a dozen or the other. Either one of them was going to hurt me. So it's split-second decision, not just when. I, I think most Aboriginal women are, are going to prison for failure to comply. They haven't been able to comply with court orders they might have gotten for a minor offence. You know, they might have been given community service or an ICO, an intensive corrections order, something like that, but it has conditions attached to it. That's difficult for anyone, but they make the conditions so onerous that women with children, kids going to school, kids still at home, that kind of thing, that it's difficult for them to comply with all these conditions, to afford the cost of travel to comply with these conditions. So they get breaches of orders and breaching an order often attracts a prison sentence. The criminal profile of female prisoners is radically different to that of male prisoners. Repeated studies have found that at least 85% of women prisoners in Australia are victims of abuse, with most having experienced multiple forms and incidents of violence. A report on women in prison in Australia, presented at the Australian National University, found that First Nations women experience higher rates of domestic and family violence than non-Indigenous women. They report a significant history of trauma and abuse beginning in childhood. Most face high levels of ongoing family violence, which have been connected to their offences and convictions, with 80% of women prisoners in one New South Wales study stating that they believed their offending was a direct consequence of their victimisation. Do you think that domestic violence played a larger role than, than this idea of systemic violence, or...? vice versa. I think the systemic violence, the institutional violence that I experienced as a kid set me up to accept domestic violence because I'd already been told my body didn't belong to me, it belonged to the system and the system is mainly patriarchal. So then I grow up and some man comes along and he treats me like that too. I accept it. I already know that I'm no good and my body doesn't belong to me anyway. Um, so I accept it for years and years and years be before I start to, to understand that it's actually not acceptable and that I don't have to allow those things to happen because I deserve them. Every time we have a death in custody on social media, you get all these people saying, but he did this or she did that, as though this stealing a car or $1,000 worth of fines justifies the violence that causes someone's death. Even failure to provide health care is a form of violence by omission, I suppose, just to imply that an Aboriginal person 
deserves everything they got when they're killed because of a petty crime. But on the, on the wider community, there's a collective grief and a collective trauma, whether we personally knew the person or not, it's a reminder that they could kill you too. So many just innocent things that people do every day can bring you to the attention of the police. You sort of look at them and think, you and your training and people just like you have killed all these people that I know of and you're still wearing your fancy dress costume and flashing your little tin badge. Why don't those people go to jail? Nobody has ever been convicted or gone to jail for the murder of a First Nation person in custody in the history of this country, and that's appalling. A human rights approach to sentencing could play a valuable role in improving justice for women and their children, who have already faced so much injustice in their lives. There are a range of situations in which the judiciary can contribute to reducing the number of women prisoners, particularly through approving bail and giving non-custodial sentences for offences. How do you think we should be responding to these kinds of things? Because the lobbying in the politics doesn't seem to be working. Every initiative, every program for First Nations people are punitive. Nothing is for our improvement or our betterment. It's all, you must do this or we'll take this away from you. Government has to take a good hard look at itself and try to shift the culture in its own dealings with First Nations people that this punitive punishment process isn't allowed to to continue. Because whenever they have that mindset that they can fix the so-called Aboriginal problem by punishing us into submission, well, that's inherently violent. It's what they've been doing for 200 years. And as far as I can tell, it's what they want to continue doing. And until our sovereignty is recognised and we get to actually decide on some of these things and we, we get the opportunity to start changing the culture in governance, I think we're going to continue to be treated the way we are now. So what are the solutions? If we reinvest justice funds into preventative services that help achieve better outcomes for women and child victims of abuse, we may see less reoffending. The families of women prisoners overwhelmingly face social disadvantages and inequalities in areas such as income, housing, employment and health. A direct investment into these areas can be expected to significantly interrupt the soaring rate at which First Nations women are being incarcerated. We need to lobby for justice reinvestment, better care once prisoners have been released, assist with their employment, empower their communities, and constructively consider the systematic oppression, or as Vicky refers to it, violence, that plagues their everyday lives. What I found particularly disturbing is this idea of being imprisoned, literally, and then experiencing this kind of surface physical versions of violence but but what you're kind of describing is that when you're released the systemic psychological violence is almost worse well it is it's all pervasive i'm starting to feel like the edges are blurred between prison 
and what this is. It's not prison, so the alternative is freedom, but I don't feel free. I feel like the same things are being imposed on me out here as they were in prison. All this compliance, I can be stopped and stripped and blood tested and neurone tested and breath tested, no matter where I go. I can be harassed on trains by uniformed men with dogs. It's, it's exactly the same as I'm treated walking around in a prison. It's exactly the same out here. It's really actually quite depressing when you realise that's what it's like. I've just kind of stepped out of this smaller prison into a larger prison. What have you learnt from systemic violence? What has it taught you throughout all these years? It's taught me to become an anarchist. I don't believe in the system. I don't trust the system or any part of it. And I dare say there's a great many people that feel like me who have been through prisons or institutions. It does that to you. Whatever these systems of oppression and violence exist, it's very hard to tear them down because the people who built them have a vested interest in seeing them continue. That's the only way I see out of it, is, is abolishing prisons, focusing on healing people from the traumas that put them on the fringes of society and keep them on the fringes of society. This episode of Violent Times was hosted by me, Mahmoud Fazal, produced by Callum Vandermortel, edited by Dom Duca and Jeffrey O'Connor, mixed and mastered by Jeffrey O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. On the next episode of Violent Times, I'll be meeting Sergeant Paul Cale, an Australian Special Forces commando who strangled a Taliban fighter with his bare hands to talk about the role of the military and state-sanctioned violence. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.